This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. It's our public health series today with my co-host Azrul Mohamed Kaleb, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. We're kicking off our first public health show for the year by talking about COVID-19. Seems a bit of a deja vu because um, this year everyone's looking at China again, um, where the country abruptly dropped its zero COVID policy last year, having held fast to it. throughout the pandemic uh, and uh, now we're seeing relaxed restrictions in China, a narrower criteria for counting COVID-19 deaths in the country, lack of reporting on asymptomatic cases and of course um, China travelers, chi- travelers from China are now visiting other countries so there are rising concerns that um, it could lead to outbreaks in other countries. So will 2023 be 2020? all over again or are we overreacting? Uh, Are there lessons that we can learn? Joining Azrul and I on the show today, Professor Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor at the Yong Lulin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore. Welcome Azrul and Prof Tiki. How are the both of you today? Very good, thank you. Thank you, Xiaoyi. Very well, thank you, Shawit. Looking forward to Chinese New Year. It's just uh, a week away or so, right? <laughs> yes, and uh, listeners can't see me, but I'm all dressed in red and floral colours yeah, already. Yeah, I, I saw that. Smart I saw that. <laughs> and uh, listeners, do call us if you have thoughts you'd like to share about the current COVID situation or your concerns uh, with regards to the situation in China. 0377332900, WhatsApp 018789 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Or your concerns about vaccination, because that's something that we will be asking Prof Tiki about. But to start off with, Prof, how would you describe the current COVID-19 situation globally, where we're seeing a little bit of a dichotomy? WHO has not actually declared the pandemic over. But for all intents and purposes in many countries, it's almost as if it's behind us already. No, I think I think certainly we are seeing quite a global sort of reduction in, in the severity as well as in the number of cases. But, uh, you know, the WHO decision not to declare the end of a pandemic is, I think, uh, a perfectly reasonable one to avoid complacency. You know, I I don't think this is over by a long shot, uh, but uh, the important thing is to keep up our guard. And we'll be finding out what does keeping up our guard um, actually mean. But uh, just very quickly, the concern, uh, and we don't know, is this a proportionate response or concern, right? The concern is about what's happening in China. And if we can look uh, at at what's happening within China first in terms of, like I said, the dropping of their zero COVID policy and the way they've changed, uh, you know, looking at measuring things. Um, What do all of those mean for the outbreak in China? Okay, I think it is quite clear that that, uh, we are seeing that the number of cases is soaring after the rather abrupt lifting of the lockdown, you know, and there are definitely indications that healthcare facilities, maybe even crematoriums, are being stretched to the limit. And I think the latest, just in the last 24 hours, Shanghai seems to be the focus of all this uh, concern. Uh, however, at the, behind all of this, um, there is still, I think, some questions about the reliability of the data. And I think many people are 
basically of the view that perhaps it is underreporting at this point in time. And that's always been a problem with uh, data result, uh, coming out of China, going back all the way to the start of the pandemic in Wuhan. Um, the question, as, as, as was put to me, was that is there potential, uh, could we see a new wave? Okay. Now, of course, the answer is potentially yes. If new variants spread beyond China, which it surely will happen, okay, with the opening of travel from China as well as uh, elsewhere. You know, my view is that while there is a possibility that an entirely new COVID variant might emerge, the chances of that happening is quite low. Now, I'm basing this as, as a virologist based on previous natural histories of viruses. The natural history is that it tends towards less virulence rather than suddenly killing more and more people. Okay, but that's just natural history and there are always exceptions. So as far as COVID is concerned, you know, we've been seeing this going on for the last three years. And actually, if you follow the literature, there have been many, many small mutations resulting in, in, in many, many different variants. But while some of them, okay, seem to be able to spread faster, they have so far not been associated with increased severity of disease and increased capacity to kill people, okay? So what we are seeing is sort of small changes in the genetics of the virus, but not a sudden big change that comes from a completely different strain. Now, if you know the history and the history behind influenza virus, there are two terms for this. Influenza undergoes very small changes, okay? And this is called antigenic drift, D-R-I-F-T. Mm -hmm. But every 10, 20, 30 years, there's a big change that happens, okay? And that is called an antigenic shift, S-H-I-F-T, like H5N1, H2N2, H3N1, etc., etc. Now, fortunately, we haven't seen that with COVID. And let's keep our fingers crossed. I'm not too worried about these sort of small minor variants because as long as the virus continues to circulate in many different parts of the world, this will continue to happen, okay? So uh, my final comment here is that we might see a surge in mild cases if the country sees, for example, a significant uh, influx of uh, travelers from, from China, okay? But my point here being is that I am a bit uh, worried about this, okay? Why, why is the concern only with travelers from China? You know, in, in my own personal view, I find that a little bit discriminatory. You know, why only travels from China when the, the virus is actually circulating everywhere in the world, you know? So to put restrictions only on travelers from China, I, I just don't think that that's, that's correct. So I'll leave it at that. Tiki, picking up on your point just now uh, in terms of what's happening in China itself, um, before we, we talk about travellers from China to other countries, within China itself, it has been highlighted several times in, in news reports, as well as those from the, the official Chinese uh, uh, information that's coming out from their health commission, that there are parts of China that have yet to have been... Uh, 
exposed or they're still naive towards COVID-19 infections. And therefore, their first exposure of COVID-19 is very much going to be uh, this exodus or intra-country travel that we're going to be seeing. This 2 billion uh, traveling uh, possibly within the Chinese New Year period over the next couple of weeks. And therefore, there's going to be a lot of places within China is going to be uh, very much exposed to the possibility of, of infection, but also uh, those who have not been vaccinated. Because as you know, the vaccination rate in China is not where it should be. And therefore, we are expecting to see many of the same scenes that are coming out from the media over there uh, of overwhelmed medical facilities, uh, people dying, crematoriums filled up and so forth, being repeated across the country in China itself. So bearing in mind what you said just now about the possibility of there being uh, variants or sub-variants coming out from different lineages and so forth, isn't this very much an opportunity really for there to be an evolution of uh, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 pathogen within this period of time where there's ample opportunity for there to be replication, for there to be mutation and and therefore new populations having new variants. Because today we're not talking about that, the native variant from uh, you know, 2020, early 2020, 2019. We're talking about now variants which include uh, Delta, which is still around, Omicron, of course, and the different subvariants. So shouldn't we be worried? I mean, I know you said just now it's minuscule or at least less likely to be concerned about because it 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 drifts towards less uh, mortality or, or morbidity. So what can we expect in the next couple of weeks from China? Okay, thank you, Azrul. I think I think you've made a very good point, okay? Uh, the sheer geography of China, uh, you know, stretching over thousands of miles means, as you have already said, that there are parts of the country where the population is uh, relatively naive. I agree with that. But also remember that those parts of the country that have naive, let's say, relatively naive populations are also likely to be less densely populated. Okay, so while I agree with you that over the coming the Chinese New Year period, billions of people moving across, clearly that is a heightened opportunity for the virus to circulate amongst naive populations. And of course, as you hinted, that could lead to more uh, virulent variants simply because the sheer scale and size of the transmission amongst these knife populations with low uh, coverage of uh, vaccine uh, is potentially a breeding ground for more uh, virulent variants to emerge. Perfectly agree with you, but uh, I still maintain that uh, the chances, let's just say that the dominant variant within China at the moment is, is relatives of Omicron, okay, which is already known to be a fairly mild causing disease. So for Omicron, even within China, uh, with the high circulation to then suddenly revert back to a more virulent uh, Delta or even the original Wuhan virus late, late 2019, I still think it's unlikely, you know, 
partly with regards to, yes, vaccination coverage is not very good. And many have said that Chinese vaccines, which have been the only one used in China, are not so effective. Uh, um, uh, they are still not so bad. Okay, Relative, relatively low density of those uh, areas where the populations are quite naive. Uh, once again, you know, my own personal view, uh, definitely uh, a possibility, but perhaps not a probability. But, you know, I've been uh, proven wrong before. Let's pick up this point when we come back from the break. I want to get the perspective if Prof Dickey says that we shouldn't just, and it's unfair to just be looking at China alone uh, in right. terms of the possibility of uh, variants circulating and outbreaks. What is the um, broader perspective here? What kinds of border control measures are actually um, you know, uh, geared towards public health rather than just being discriminatory? Uh, we'll continue this discussion with Professor Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor from the Yong Lulin School of Medicine at National University of Singapore, with my co-host Azrul Mohammad Khalid, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. We'll be right back on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my co-host for the Public Health Show today, Azrul Mohammad Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. We're speaking to Professor Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor at the Yong Lulin School of Medicine at NUS on National University of Singapore. We're discussing the COVID-19 outbreak, sort of the outlook for this year, with uh, the scene being set um, with the situation in China, just kind of getting some perspective on that and how it could or perhaps not have that much of an impact um, in terms of outbreaks in other countries, the possibility of new variants developing, uh, which uh, Prof Tiki has already sort of um, given us that perspective of. Um, but Prof, earlier you said that you find it perhaps a little bit... Um, tunnel vision to be looking at only China and the impact of the situation on China on what could happen in other countries. Now, what do you mean by that, right? What uh, Put that into perspective for us in terms of um, how we should be looking at the entire global situation instead. Yes, um, I, I think I, I have quite a, a strong view on this because I really do feel that, um, you know, the threat of new variants entering a particular country can come not just from China, but from anywhere else in the world uh, that are still having a proportion of the population unvaccinated and are traveling freely to come to our part uh, of the world. And, and you can see that reflected. And I think some governments, um, you know, you can criticize them for what they base decisions on, okay? We know very well, the US, Japan, Italy, Germany, they have basically put in restrictions on travelers from China. But if you look at the Southeast Asian countries, they are much more relaxed about this, okay? Uh, in the sense that perhaps, perhaps, okay, the economic considerations, okay, uh, are very much foremost in their minds, okay, to sort of recover quickly from the pandemic, rather than that, for me, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, the sort of the more Western mindset of, you know, seeing 
China <laughs> and Asians as being a threat to their own survival. I mean, you go back to the to 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 Trump calling calling this the China virus. Okay, so I, I think I think that's the way I look at it. And um, how governments decide on whether to put in restrictions or whether to be more relaxed, I think is something that is context specific. I mean, just take Malaysia and Singapore, for example, okay? Uh, we have populations which are relatively highly vaccinated. Many have contracted mild forms of COVID. So the resilience and the resistance of the overall community is quite high, okay? You look at the other side of that. Let's say something happens and you know some new variants from China or from wherever causes a new wave. On the other hand, the healthcare systems within, you know, say Singapore and Malaysia and even other countries in the region, they have had lots of experience in dealing with the pandemic in the past or two, three years and arguably are better prepared. They've learned the lessons should there be a new surge, okay? So, I mean, you can, you probably remember South Africa back when Omicron appeared in 2021. Suddenly, yeah. all the countries around the region placed very strict restrictions and border control. But remember, the situation is very different mm -hmm. in late 2022. You know, you do not have the extent of vaccination that you have now compared in 2021, okay? And interestingly, South Africa is not tightening restrictions on China travel, right? So, I mean, that's just my, my perspective uh, about all this thing. And you, you might have seen a, 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 an article in the New York Times that actually accuses the US government of actually being racist okay, uh, against uh, China and against Asians in general. But uh, let's not get into that. <laughs> Azrul? Yeah, well, you know, Prof, uh, one of the mantras that was very much heard during uh, the acute crisis period of 2020 and 2021 is, is that we need to be guided by the science, guided by the data, and to ensure that uh, our policies are reflective of that. But it, it's not really the same in the real world, is it, uh, Prof? No, because, no, uh, no, no. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, political pressures do come quite a bit. And uh, right now, we just got news, I think, uh, this morning uh, to uh, the update from China where they have now basically in retaliation for Japan and South Korea imposing, uh, actually, it's not even a block. It's really just a... a uh, a, requirement. a requirement, yeah, negative a requirement. COVID test requirement. Exactly, and and also there has been some limitations concerning flights to uh, Japan from China, but uh, the the Chinese have retaliated by basically indicating that uh, they will no longer issue short term visas for visitors from from Japan South and South Korea. So, but at the same time, you know, you just mentioned about about the US and Malaysia also has indicated that there will now be a single lane for Chinese travelers. So basically all Chinese travelers are going to be funneled through this lane, which begs to my mind, you know, is there going to be an isolation funnel from the plane all the way up to that channel? Because they're going to be engaging with other travelers in the airport with other people and so forth. And you know, it doesn't make any sense, but at the it end doesn't. of the day, 
it, it's responding to public pressure, isn't it? Right, uh, right, 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 right. So, right, absolutely. How do we how do we balance this? I mean, we we look at the data, we know the science. As you said just now, we've learned so much from the past. Two and, two and a half years. And governments do? don't want to be seen to be doing nothing as well. Exactly. So what is the balance between doing something but also doing something that is actually public health driven? Yeah, so obviously that, that, that's a difficult uh, question. But I think underlying Asrul's comment is that there's no doubt in my mind that the COVID pandemic has really illustrated the reality that health is now heavily politicized. Okay, as rule, you already mentioned this tit for tat retaliation. I mean, if that's not politics, I, I don't know what is. Okay, many other examples. Another example is what you all would know very well: vaccine nationalism. Okay, where the rich countries that can afford to pay for these vaccines have been hoarding vaccines. Okay, many many doses more than what they actually need. All right. And and then and, and that has resulted rather than sort of donating or allowing the countries that need them more to access the vaccine. I mean, that's nationalism. That's looking after your own interest. Another example of politicization is importantly around the reliability of data. Okay. Um, I mean, anecdotally, there have been governments who have actually not been so open and transparent, okay about the real situation in terms of data to avoid harsh lockdowns, okay? On the opposite end, you have China, regardless of the data, harsh lockdown, okay? Another example of politicization at, at the highest level, you see what how you saw what happened with the early days of Trump in the US, you know, telling people to drink Clorox to take care of the virus, okay? The other very, catastrophic example is Brazil under Bolsonaro, you know, totally against the, the, the evidence. In the US, one of my colleagues told me that how measures were implemented in the various states in the United States depends on whether the governor of that state is a Republican or a Democrat. That's another example of politics. Not so united after all. <laughs> yeah, exactly, not so united after all. But Azrul, I mean, to to cut a long story short, I absolutely agree. Okay, I'm a scientist. So you are right. The mantra all over the world, science informs and drives policy. That's the aspiration. What's the reality? The reality, I'm sorry to say, politics will always trump science. That's the reality. And we just have to learn to live with it. You know, unfortunately... But from a pragmatic point of view uh, and, and from your public health uh, viewpoint, right. Prof, you talked about you know how it's important for us to not drop our guard. So right. you know if we um, if we aspire to be able to set aside politics and geopolitics, what right. does not dropping our guard mean in terms of being prepared for potential outbreaks or uh, new variants developing? Yeah, I think uh, basically, uh, shall we, you you refer to your, I'm referring to your early question of how do you get the right balance, right? Mm. Correct? So I think in terms of what you need to do, I think, and I, I, I think Singapore is probably a very good example of a country that has found 
perhaps the right balance. Okay, but you know, it's I say that only because I know the situation best. Okay, as you know, they have a multi-ministry task force, which involves not just the Minister of Health, but the Minister of Social Welfare, the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Communications, importantly. Okay, but if you remember all the press conference that the task force does, they are always accompanied by the Director of Medical Services, who provides the scientific advice and information. So it sends a message to the public that we are not just making decisions based on national interest or ideology or our own national agenda, but driven mostly by science. But in terms of what countries can do, I, th I think this is fairly easy, okay? Vaccinate, 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 okay? Continue those measures that have proven to be effective in the past. Clearly, things like uh, wearing of masks, especially in public transport, especially in, in, in hospitals. Make sure the elderly population are well covered by, by boosters. And of course, most importantly, maintain the readiness of your healthcare system, okay? It's not rocket science, you know, in terms of uh, obtaining the balance, but once again, we go back to the politics of the whole thing, depending on the sort of the political dynamics of a particular country. Uh, is the voice of science and reason more strong than the voice of politicians? That's always the question, and that's always sort of uh, context-specific. And, and, and I cite Singapore as being a good example of that for many reasons. You know, my <laughs> let, let me share with you my own personal view. Why does it work so well in Singapore? and not so so well in, in Malaysia or other countries. My own personal view <laughs> is that Singapore is a single party state, okay? So if, <laughs> if, if the ruling party <laughs> makes a decision, there's no effective opposition to argue, okay? Okay, so sorry, that's just- Th Those a, are the advantages <laughs> of, of Singapore. Azro, you had a question. Hey, yeah. Well, from, you know, We've mentioned quite a bit about uh, vaccination and need to wear masks. And I really hope that some of our ministers are listening to this broadcast. <laughs> I noticed that they're not wearing masks, you know, in the very conditions in which, you know, we know our, the, the key point here is know your risk level. Yes, of and course. To respond accordingly. Obviously, it's not necessary to wear a mask if you're in an open field and, you know, in uh, a situation where there is, very, good very ventilation. good ventilation. It's outside, yeah. outdoors, and so forth. But uh, uh, many a times they're not wearing masks anyway. And when we talk about um, vaccinations, there's been a lot of talk uh, of late uh, and concern about uh, waning immunity. And definitely, there is a lack of discussion in that respect because uh, a lot of people, let's face it, are sick and tired of being vaccinated. There is vaccine fatigue. Uh, honestly, I'm I'm not entirely sure where that that fatigue necessarily comes from because it is at the end of the day uh, something that is a public good that the government, many governments have given for at no cost and it is paid for by the taxpayer. So you just need to get yourself boosted. But a lot of people haven't gotten their booster dose in Malaysia. It's less than fifty percent for the first booster and the second booster is even less at around, what, 2% or so. So a lot of people cite being reluctant to do that because they feel that the booster shot is going to knock them out 
make them sick, uh, cause them to have different side effects. And they're more fearful of that than, than getting uh, uh, COVID. Uh, uh, yeah, being sick of COVID-19, the disease itself. So how do we go about dealing with that? Because we have to acknowledge these concerns are real. Yeah. And uh, it's something that we have to address to address vaccine hesitancy. So how, how do we go about doing that, Prof? Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it it's not so much about vaccine acceptance, but more about vaccine confidence, okay? And as you say, there's so much misinformation going on about safety, about side effects, about efficacy, even misinformation going around about, uh, you know, certain vaccines from certain countries are not so good. That's another example of politics. Okay. But I think the, the, you know, your question is, how do you go about it? It really is about communications. Okay. And, you know, I, 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 I teach a course on global health in, in, in Singapore here. And I emphasize the fact that what you need is really both a top-down sort of, you know, from the public health authorities approach, but importantly, it has to be supplemented from a grassroots bottoms-up approach. You need to send the right messages. You need to send those messages through the right media, okay? It could be social media for the younger people. It could be TV or newspapers for the older folks who uh, are not on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Uh, whatever. Importantly, you have to choose the right messengers, not just the right messages, but the right messengers. Okay. And we 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 make this mistake that the best person to send the message is the Minister of Health or the DG, Dato Nori Sham, if he or Tansri Nori Sham, if he's still the DG. Okay. We tend to think that these are people uh, in the higher ranks of government that are most uh, let's say, appropriate to be the messengers. But that may not necessarily be the case, okay? You may need to actually uh, find messengers that can actually connect, okay? Uh, I was made aware of a survey in Indonesia where they went to some remote villages and asked some machi, machi there why they refused to take the vaccine, okay? And uh, why, you know, macam apa awak tak percaya kepada Menteri Kesehatan? So this Machi, who is illiterate, who is about 60 years old, uh, with a diabetes, apparently. You know what she said? When confronted with the fact about why don't you listen to the minister, she said, I am more likely to believe someone who looks like me and who speaks like me. Okay? And when she says speaks like me, she's not talking about Bahasa Indonesia. She's talking about Javanese. Okay, so that is, I think, the way to overcome it. It's all about effective communications. Yes, which doesn't just mean the uh, the content of the message, but how you're delivering it. A point well made, Prof. Tiki. We yeah, and, and in terms of messengers, I think the other one that I've seen in Indonesia to be effective messengers are celebrities. Okay, mm. you may think that's that's doesn't make sense, but uh, as famous sports figures, film stars, mm. singers, the they can be very effective. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I do have a follow-up point on that, but we have to go for a quick break first. Uh, And I'll come back to follow up on the point about uh, social media and the use of celebrities and influencers. But but just to get you to address the issue of the bivalent vaccines and its safety, Prof. But we'll do that when we come back from the break. Um, Along with my co-host, Azrul Mohammad Khalid from the Galen Centre of Health and Social Policy, we're speaking to Professor Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor of the Yong Lu Lin School of Medicine, National University of Singapore. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoi. On the Public Health Show today, my co-host, Azrul Mohammad Khaleb from the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy and our guest, Professor Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor at the Yong Lu Lin School of Medicine, National University of Singapore. We are discussing the COVID-19 situation for the year, looking at the situation in China, as well as what other countries have been doing in response, what is proportionate, and uh, perhaps what countries really do need to be looking at beyond the, the beyond the optics and geopolitics. Um, Azro, I'm going to steal the mic for a little while to uh, get a follow-up from Prof Tiki about vaccination because he said that the one thing that we can do well right now is vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Booster doses for populations who are at risk and those who haven't gotten it. Um, you talked about the use of social media for communication, celebrities and influencers, Prof, but a lot of the misinformation or the narratives out there is that bivalent vaccines are an new vaccine all over again. They're not safe. We're being used as guinea pigs all over again. Perhaps you can explain to us what is um, what are these bivalent vaccines? How are they different or not? How have they been proven or are they really safe for us? Okay, the quick answer to your question is, is you know, the, the bivalent vaccines are still in the fairly age, uh, early stages of uh, testing, okay? The development is fine, but the, the testing clearly requires a, a lot more time to be entirely sure of safety and efficacy. My, my view as a scientist is that the construction of the vaccine itself is no different from all the other previous uh, vaccines. And, you know, people are now talking not just about bivalent vaccine, but in the UK and in the US, there are many institutions working on all variant vaccines to cover all possible future variants. There are companies working on a nasal vaccine as well. Okay, now in terms of safety, and this is a standard uh, misinformation. When the original batch of COVID vaccines came out, okay, a lot of misinformation, oh, these vaccines were developed too quickly. We don't know whether they are safe, what side effects they can produce and all that sort of thing. That was a common refrain. We don't know enough about it. It was produced too fast. The reality is this, okay? I was involved in the development of a dengue vaccine going back 20 years. Every time we, when we wanted to test the vaccine, okay, in many, many countries, we actually had a shortage of dengue cases. So we never had enough numbers to be sure that the vaccine is safe. Was that a problem with COVID? You suddenly have a disease with tens of millions of people who actually got the disease, okay? So that's why that the process of development can happen so quickly. But I can tell you, there were no shortcuts. All the standard safeguards 
okay, of doing the clinical trials, 30, 40,000 people all were in place. The regulatory processes all were in place. The speed is because of the magnitude of the pandemic. A lot of people forget that. Okay, and on top of that, the science of messenger RNA is not something that came up in 2019. That has been built up over 20 years. Okay, so I my quick answer to your question is on the bivalence and the all variant and the nasal vaccine. It's too early to say, but I would predict, predict there's not going to be any difference. Okay, because all you're doing is just tinkling a bit with the with the genetics of the of the components of the vaccine. But do we need to wait for bivalent vaccines um, for booster doses or should people just get boosted with whatever vaccines are available? My answer to that is depends on whether you are at risk. Okay, If you're like me, about 70 years of age, um, and if you have uh, predisposing conditions, it could be heart disease, it could be cancer, it could be diabetes, whatever, then perhaps it's, it's, it's a good idea to have a booster. The other consideration, I can be very honest with you, I have not taken my fourth dose. Why? Because <laughs> number one, I'm scared of needles, okay? Number two, number two, <laughs> in, in August, I actually got COVID when I was visiting Bali. You know, a bit mild, two or three days, I recovered. So as an immunologist, I would like to believe that through a natural infection, my resistance is, is quite high. So I don't want to get stuck again with the needle. Now that goes back to us rules, a real question. Wearing a mask or taking boosters, whatever, it also depends on your risk level, okay? If you are, for example, um, a frontline healthcare worker, of course you should be wearing masks. If you're a bus driver, of course you should be wearing masks. If you're an immigration passport control officer in the airport, of course you should be wearing masks. If you're working in nurseries with young children, of course you mm -hmm. should be wearing masks. Yes. So, you know, as you say, it's it's getting the right balance yeah. correct instead of a blanket kind of regulation. Azra? Well, you know, uh, picking up on this point concerning the bivalent vaccine, uh, as you probably know, uh, Prof, uh, Malaysia has actually already approved uh, for... Uh, the bivalent vaccine that has been developed by Pfizer and it is going to be able to uh, protect against the different variants that are currently in circulation right now and we are expecting there to be delivery of this vaccine uh, in the next couple of months or so, So, meaning it's going to be available for the public very soon. And, you know, based on what we've heard and we understand also from yourself, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Getting vaccinated is, is key. I think right, that, right. that's important. And whether it's the monovalent or the bivalent vaccine, you should get vaccinated. And especially if you've only had your primaries, it's best yeah. to get your boosters today, uh, especially if it's been more than six months. So mm -hmm. today, you know, one of the keywords that we're talking about is, and you mentioned it very strongly just now, is about fighting back against complacency. Uh, it's good to get uh, vaccinated, it is good to continue wearing your mask, know your risk levels and so forth. But for governments, they have to maintain vigilance. And we, we keep emphasizing before and now, at least for the Galen Center, constant vigilance is key. Yeah, so, for so for governments, right, Prof, uh, surveillance is going to play a major key, whether it's passive or active surveillance. Uh, you know, Malaysia has started testing wastewater, for example. So what other methods can governments look out for, especially if we're talking about emerging new variants uh, in the next, you know, six months or a year uh, in the coming? Because it's going to be based on which country is going to be able to 
identify what variant new, if any, first. So what can countries like Malaysia do? Yeah, I, I think I think I think you've already mentioned the most important uh, dimension of this, which is uh, keeping up uh, surveillance uh, amidst this increasing uh, com complacency. Uh, but just to add to that, when you say surveillance, you know, uh, as you know, the technology has increased dramatically in 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 many parts of, of the world. Now you can do antigen tests uh, at home, you know. Uh, but my big question there is: Okay, you can you can keep up this kind of home testing, but is that actually communicated to the public health agency? Okay, because surveillance for me, unless it is translated into early detection of potential hotspots, that depends on good information systems. Okay, not just on doing the testing, but how the testing results is then transmitted to the public health agencies that then decide on the mitigation measures. I see that as missing in many countries, okay? That information link between uh, early detection surveillance and public health action, okay? So and the third component that I think is particularly important because you mentioned variants, is the capacity to do genomic sequencing, okay? Uh, that has improved dramatically even in, in many developing countries. And if, if you are able to rapidly do genomic sequencing, not only are you able to quickly detect if a variant is appearing, but importantly, to share it with neighboring countries. Because, you know, as they always exactly. say, right. no one is safe until everyone is safe. Mm. So the surveillance cannot happen in isolation. It has to be exactly. linked to public health measures and, yes, and decisions. Yes, yes. Very quickly, a question on WhatsApp by our listener. A recent study indicated that mRNA can be absorbed into cell DNA. What are the implications of this? Do you want to address this, Prof? Um, I, I don't want to sound uh, you know, um, flippant or rude on this, but I think... This probably, I've heard this many, many, many times. You know, RNA is going to get integrated in our DNA and then it's going to cause cancer and all kinds of problems. Unfortunately, I believe this is a reflection of poor scientific literacy amongst the general population, okay? Because that idea of messenger RNA going into the cell, okay, and then integrating and causing problems, that's just total nonsense, okay? For one, the messenger RNA is injected in very, very small quantities. It's a single strand of the molecule, means it gets degraded very quickly. And the basic mantra of molecular biology, sorry, the basic truth about molecular biology is that information goes from DNA to RNA to protein, not the other way around. Of course, you know, experts might argue, oh, there are enzymes that can do reverse transcription, but the basic thing is that RNA does not, especially messenger RNA, which is really information for protein, that does not get integrated back into human DNA. No way. Okay. Uh, of course, somebody somewhere will prove me wrong as that that's happened in the past. <laughs> <laughs> not on this. Not on this where it's actually fundamental science. Okay, Prof. exactly. Um, we need to wrap up. Uh, a quick message from you, Prof. Will 2023 be 2020 all over again? What can we do differently? No, I think it will not be, okay? I think cases will continue to happen because there are pockets like China where the virus continues to circulate. 
But even if there uh, is an increase or stabilization, those cases will be uh, largely uh, mild. But as Asrul said, we just need to uh, maintain vigilance, uh, avoid complacency, and continue those measures that has been proven in the last two years, three years to be effective. So that's my final message. Thank you very much, Prof. Tiki. We've been speaking to Professor Tiki Pangestu, visiting professor at the Yong Lulin School of Medicine at National University of Singapore. And thank you to my co-host, Azrul Mohamad Khalib, CEO at the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.